My name is Stuart Merrill, and I woke up this day. Episode 10.2, That Crazy Foreign Woman, Part 2. There are many things about the Mormon culture that baffle me, about the least of which is their all-encompassing devotion to conformity. Mormons truly believe they are the special few anointed by God. They live a spiritually privileged existence, all smug and self-satisfied in their exclusionary corner of the universe. They look down their cute little cosmetically altered noses at the rest of us, and they are completely oblivious to how utterly ridiculous they appear to the outside world. Mum used to call it the Mormon symphony of polished mediocrity. She took no part in it, and they hated her for it. Even her own children hated her for it. How dare that crazy foreign woman so brazenly break that sacred social barrier of mediocrity? I always found it rather telling, and a little sad really, that the things everyone absolutely adored about my mum in Europe were the very same things they abhorred in Utah. I guess I saw my mum more for who she wished to be, who she rarely had the opportunity to be, who I wanted to believe she was, and who she helped me to become. I was her prized little prince, the one and only child who understood and appreciated her truly magnificent qualities. I will always mourn for her, though, and the unrequited promise of her brilliance. On one occasion in Munich, my close friend Niels's father, Dieter, the Baron von Engel Erlenbach, invited me to a formal dinner at the Munich Opera House. It was a remarkable affair, and I've never experienced anything quite like it before or since. Before the opera began, we went to the dining room and pre-selected our menu. Then, during the 30-minute intermission, with stunning German efficiency, the waiter's rapid-fire served us one of the best five-course meals I've ever had. There were about a dozen of us at the table, and I was one of the few who didn't have a title. I had been entertaining them with humorous tales of growing up as a Russian Orthodox Mormon in Utah and of my recent business trip to Moscow. At the time, I was working as a translator and senior project manager for an investment firm in Chicago. The firm I worked for was owned by some conservative fundamentalist Christians. They saw it as their Christian duty to assist the Soviet Union into becoming a good Christian capitalist society. Only they knew absolutely nothing about the Soviet Union. My very well-meaning employers struggled under some, at times, rather humorous misconceptions. The biggest of these was they thought all 11 time zones and the vast conglomerate of diverse cultures that comprised the Soviet Union were all Russian. Russia isn't even all Russian. There are 35 official languages just in Russia. You can fit the entire continental United States two and a half times within the state of Siberia, which is only one of the 85 regions that comprise Russia. Though the capital of the Soviet Union may have been Moscow, Russia was just one of the 15 very diverse cultures and nations that comprise the Soviet Union. Some of these, quote, independent nations were about as Russian as Belgium or Botswana. After all, it was called the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, plural. 
There were Scandinavians in the Baltics, Volgadeutsch in Kazakhstan who spoke an old dialect of German, Catholics in Ukraine, indigenous Siberian populations whose languages are similar to what's spoken in Alaska and British Columbia, multiple Chinese languages spoken in South Siberia, as well as several Middle Eastern and Central Asian republics in the South where the vast majority of the population is Muslim and can't speak a word of Russian. The senior project manager with whom I shared an office was a breathtakingly beautiful, blonde, blue-eyed, very American woman who looked and thought remarkably like Ann Coulter. God told her, no, seriously, I'm not kidding. She said God told her she needed to build a Christian marriage counseling center in Baku. Baku is the capital of Azerbaijan, basically a Middle Eastern nation where they answer the call to prayer four times daily facing Mecca. Very few Azeris speak Russian or have any connection whatsoever to the Russian culture. Where she came up with this insane idea of building a Christian marriage counseling center in an Islamic nation, I have absolutely no idea. At that point, she hadn't even been to Russia, much less the outlying Middle Eastern, predominantly Muslim, Soviet republics. I shared with her my foremost concern, which was, well, white slavery. White Western women simply did not travel alone in Azerbaijan at that time, ever. It was entirely unsafe to do so, especially a breathtakingly beautiful, blonde, blue-eyed American woman who looked and thought like Ann Coulter. When this line of reasoning didn't work, I tried to remind her of Maslow's theory of hierarchical needs and explained that many in Azerbaijan had some very pressing existential needs that philanthropists would do well to address before building a Christian marriage counseling center. Finally, as a last resort, I explained what, frankly, should have been blatantly obvious. It was outrageously disrespectful, very offensive, and downright provocative in a nation known for violence against outsiders to expect a bunch of practicing Muslims to convert to Christianity so they could visit her Christian marriage counseling center in an Islamic nation. But no, God told her. And her exact words to me were, Who do you think you are to argue with God? Over the course of several months after she and my boss had raised tens of thousands of dollars, she left for Baku to scout out a location for her Christian marriage counseling center. I happened to be in Moscow when she returned from Baku. My Russian co-workers and I were all dying to ask her how it went. We had a long discussion, and it was finally determined since I knew her best, and since I was an American, this task would fall to me. At a large company dinner with a couple dozen of our Russian co-workers present, I turned to her and asked, So how did things go in Baku? With this somewhat perplexed look on her face, she answered, Stuart, it was so weird. When I was in Baku, it didn't feel like Russia at all. There was that intensely awkward moment of silence as we all tried to be respectful and control our reaction, but it just wasn't possible. There was no way to hold back the torrent of uproarious laughter as my perplexed American boss and co-worker looked on in total confusion. When I told that story to everyone at the restaurant in the Munich Opera House, I got the exact same reaction. 
With everyone laughing, this sweet old German countess complimented me on my presentation. I honestly never thought I would meet an American who understood the subtleties of finer European culture and could communicate them in flawless, accent-free High German. Dieter immediately piped in and said, Ah, oh, but you're wrong, dear Countess. You see, I've been to Utah, and any woman who can raise a man like this in a place like that must be truly miraculous. The compliment, my dear Countess, should go to Stuart's mother. No truer words were ever spoken, and I will be forever grateful to my mum for teaching me how to thrive in a world that during my horrific childhood had seemed to be nothing more than a long-extinct fantasy. When I discovered this world truly did exist, I also discovered my mum had equipped me to flourish in it. During my childhood, when people in Utah saw the way my mum was raising me, they rolled their eyes and called her that crazy foreign woman. Throughout every moment of my childhood, the Mormons made it abundantly clear to me that as that porcelain, pretty, effeminate little queer son of that crazy foreign woman, I did not belong in their bizarre utopia, which was fine with me. My entire childhood was spent as an outsider looking in on this baffling Mormon reality. As an adult in Germany, armed with the lessons my mom had taught me, I was finally able to find that quirky, somewhat eccentric individual I am. The more I grew to love myself, the more my German friends seemed to love me. I learned life wasn't about conformity. It was about discovering who you are and learning to love the person you are meant to be, no matter how eccentric, different, or even gay. Mum spent the last 30 years of her life in Payson, Arizona, surrounded by people who neither appreciated nor even comprehended her remarkable qualities or her valuable contribution to our American society. Both my parents raised us to believe it is our responsibility to leave this world a better place than we found it. And I'm very proud knowing that my mother most definitely left this world a better place, even if those around her were oblivious to her brilliant contributions. Shortly after my move from Berlin to New York, I suddenly found myself playing the role of a sort of trans-global Florence Nightingale. I had flown to Arizona to spend some time with my mom. I couldn't return to New York without a tan, so I spent my last day lying in the sun on my mom's back porch while she sat under an umbrella next to me. We drank iced tea, and she read Hamlet aloud to me, our favorite play. This, above all, to thine own self be true. And it must follow as the night the day, thou canst not then be false to any man. Farewell, my blessing, season this in thee. I had no way of knowing then that Polonius's exquisitely eloquent blessing for his departing son would in a way become my mother's final blessing for me, nor that this, my most cherished memory of my mum, would become so sadly prophetic. A few weeks later, my mum was diagnosed with a meningeal brain tumor that took up 20% of her brain cavity. After neurosurgery, she was in a medically induced coma for several weeks. I sat beside her in the hospital, holding her hand, and I wrote her this letter. Oh, mum, where are you now? I hold your hand in mine and hope that you'll squeeze back to tell me that you hear me. What is it like where you are now? You have always so eloquently shared with me your experiences, your life. Will you ever be able to share these moments with me, these long days? 
At first, I worried that you were lonely there without me. But now you are sharing a world with your thoughts, your memories, your knowledge, your friends, your family, your reality, your fantasy. Living in a mind as rich as yours must be a wonderful place. I hope it is a peaceful place, a place of joy. Am I being selfish to want to intrude in this world of yours, to tell you that I love you and want you back in this world, this world that I have always shared with you? Native Americans believe that we live in two worlds, our wakeful life and the more important spiritual life of our dreams. Is that where you are now? Is that where you will stay? Will I find you there when I close my eyes? Will we travel together and laugh at ourselves or wonder at new places and times? Please come back to this place. I miss you. With whom can I share my day-to-day -day joys? Who will understand when I laugh at life's ironies? Who will read Hamlet aloud to me while I close my eyes and envelop my soul in your blanket of motherly love? Oh, Mum, please come back. It's lonely here without you. At the same time, my closest friend back in Munich, Hans, was diagnosed with cancer. I spent the next few months flying back and forth between Munich and Scottsdale, and had the very good fortune of being in Scottsdale when my mum came out of her coma. I helped her learn to walk and talk again, and just get through life's daily dexterities. The most fulfilling experience of my life was giving back to the person who had given me life. Spending that time with my mum was the best decision I ever made. My greatest friend, my eloquent and elegant teacher, my fierce protector, my beloved mentor and mamachka, would never recover her stunning brilliance. Watching someone you love suffer a traumatic brain injury is heart-wrenching, and I would spend the next 20 years mourning her loss, though she was still with us. But she did keep some of her biting wit. Her first full sentence as she was coming out of her coma was addressed to her very good-looking male nurse. I was sitting beside her writing and noticed she was intently staring at this handsome young bodybuilder and following him around the room with her eyes. Suddenly she said, Have you met my single gay son? He turned instantly crimson and all but sprinted out of the room. After several weeks of rehab with my mum, I returned to Germany to help Hans for a few weeks. When spring finally came, with Hans thankfully on the mend and mum back home with her husband, I returned to New York. Hans came from an old-titled German family with money. Officially, he was the Count von Geiselheringer, though he didn't like to use his title and hated it if anyone introduced him as a count. He was far too well-raised to be that pretentious. He was just Hansi. As a thank-you gift to me for helping him and my mother through that very difficult winter, Hans took the Concord to New York, bought a pre-made picnic basket from Dean and DeLuca, and we had a champagne picnic in Central Park. When we were finished, he handed me an envelope containing a summer lease for a beach house on Fire Island and a few thousand dollars so I didn't have to work and could spend the summer in style trying to get used to my new life in America. He understood better than most how much I'd been struggling with this transition. The most difficult social transition I've ever experienced was certainly not coming out as gay. That was the easiest and by far the most natural. Nor was it moving to a new country with a new culture and a new language. It was returning to my homeland and seeing my own country and culture through the eyes and with the heart 
of a foreigner. Germany was the only place I'd ever lived where I could just relax and be my true self and know everyone appreciated me for it. At that time, blatant homophobia was still thoroughly laced into the American social fabric. In some respects, American attitudes towards gays had improved since I left during the Reagan years. We certainly had more allies than before. But especially with reminders of AIDS everywhere, it was a very far cry from living in Berlin, where being gay was simply a non-issue. If anything, we used to joke gays in Berlin were victims of the Velvet Pillow Syndrome. Berliners treated gays like pampered mascots, as if they were carrying us around on an ornamental velvet pillow. Sometimes it could get downright annoying. At that point, I had lived most of my adult life in Europe. The time I had spent in America was first at the Defense Language Institute, studying the languages and cultures of Europe. Then I served the balance of my time in the military in Germany. And after the military, I remained in Germany. When I returned to America to continue my studies, which consisted largely of the languages and cultures of Europe, each summer I returned to Europe to work, do my internship, and my study abroad. Also, I worked my way through university as a Russian and German translator, then project manager dealing almost exclusively with Europeans, flying to Europe for four or five day extended weekends or during spring break to work. And when that job ended, I returned to Germany. Also, I realized, though I had been raised mostly in America, I was raised by my mom, not an American, and she didn't raise me like an American, or even to be an American. Faced with the task of finding my way in the American culture was proving to be surprisingly difficult, and I couldn't shake that awkward feeling of being constantly out of step and out of place. One young man I worked with put it best when he told me, You're not even Eurotrash. You're faux Eurotrash. At that stage in my life, it honestly felt like I was doomed to spend the rest of my life with no culture I could call my own. However, it turned out Hans was right. A fun-filled summer on Fire Island surrounded by thousands of hot, shirtless gay men was exactly what I needed to teach me not only to appreciate, but to become one of those superficial gay Americans I had so vehemently decried. Thanks, Hansi. With all my family's faults, death is one thing we have always done quite beautifully. In another podcast, I tell the story of my Mormon grandmother's passing. She forbade me from coming to say goodbye to her until my finals at Northwestern were finished. She patiently waited more than ten days so she could lovingly tell me she knew I was gay. She said, we love you very much just the way you are. A few hours later, she slipped into a coma and died. My father's departure was no less magnificent. Though he died unexpectedly at only 52 from a massive heart attack, he had a premonition he was going to die. He called his children and made each of us promise one special thing. Though my siblings have all reneged on the promises they made to our dying father, I promised I would stay close to our mother. Possibly I could have done more, but I did my best to provide her with a friendship and love she enjoyed with no one else on earth certainly with none of her other children. Keeping that promise to remain close to my mum was the most fulfilling thing I've ever done. When Wawi, my Russian grandmother, left us, it was truly one of the most brilliantly poignant moments of my life. When my mum chose a career as an opera singer, initially her mother had disowned her because, in her words, Russian ladies simply did not perform on the stage. However, 
On her deathbed in Vancouver General Hospital, I sat with my mother as she held her mamushka's hand. My Russian babushka asked her daughter, my mom, to sing Ave Maria for her. This was her very Russian way of asking her daughter's forgiveness and telling her she loved and supported her just the way she is. Mum started singing her favorite Bach Gunos Ave Maria, which frankly is a better showcase for her gorgeous soprano range and voice. But Wawi stopped her and said, no, the other one. Mum proceeded to sing the most exquisite rendition of Franz Schubert's Ave Maria I have ever heard. It was as if all her years of training, decades of experience and God-given talents had been meant for that one breathtaking moment. One by one, all the nurses, doctors, and people visiting other patients came and stood outside the door to listen. There wasn't a dry eye in the house as my mum forgave her momature and said goodbye in the most magnificently eloquent way I have ever witnessed. I wasn't there for my mother's funeral because my siblings intentionally lied to me about the date so I wouldn't be able to attend my own mother's funeral. Oftentimes when I'm alone in private moments, I sing Franz Schubert's Ave Maria for my mom, and someday I hope to hold a special service for my mom with a world-class soprano singing Ave Maria for Maya Mamuchka. Thank you, mom, for giving me this precious gift, for giving me my life, twice. I will always miss you, and I love you very much. I'm following your example and doing my best to leave this world a better place than I found it. I hope my legacy is a safer, kinder, more inclusive world for all the hymns, hers, and days of today and tomorrow. I am that poorest and pretty, effeminate little queer son of that crazy foreign woman. My name is Stuart Merrill, and I am so very proud to say I survived and woke up this gay.